0: Well, last we talked, yeah, it was about Ewok, right? And like organizing what what would it really take to organize a million new people into the labor movement? I believe that was kind of this the theme of our conversation. But these days, I feel like you wanna pick some fight or something about semex bargaining orders and and also I've written some stuff about pre-majority unionism, which I find interesting. Yeah. I mean,
1: since we talked last, um, you know, I've still been a volunteer with Ewok, which, you know, your listeners might know is this DSA UE joint project to help workers organize. It started at the beginning of the pandemic, it's still going strong. I think it has like over a thousand volunteers that have come through the system. Mm-hmm. And um, what was happening was as, as cases were coming in and we were talking to workers, there was like, you know, sets of workers that didn't fall into kind of like the normal kind of organizing of, you know, file for an election and, and, and get certification. And so we were trying to think of, like, you know, we need to, like, educate folks about, like, there are still ways that you can organize. And we settled on this term pre-majority unionism. And we didn't invent anything. We're kind of re something that's kind of existed for a long time. Like, for instance, the IWW has practiced solidarity unionism for, you know, well, you know, well over a century. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for instance, workers who are public sector workers in southern states, for instance, without collective bargaining rights. So they're never going to get a contract. But, you know, a lot of them want to organize. So, you know, I could talk about a case study about that. So so that's one example. Mm -hmm. Um, There could be folks that, you know, maybe they're in the private sector at a workplace and they just don't feel that like winning a majority election is possible anytime soon for one reason or another, but they still want to organize. Um, And then even things like, you know, maybe to be provocative, like we could even consider the Starbucks campaign. You know, to be a form of pre-majority, it's winning store by store elections, which is amazing. Has racked up, you know, well over three hundred. But I think we know needs to probably get organizing at thousands of stores. So, in other words, it's still is still organizing to force the company to do things, Mm -hmm. and without without certification. And so, in a sense, it's kind of like in this in this weird liminal space of combining store elections, but also a lots of other stuff you know, which I think is really admirable in a lot of ways. So basically, anybody who wants to start organizing does not have to wait around for a union to show up, just start organizing, do direct actions, start winning some things. And if you want, in some cases, you can go and then try to do an election and get certification, or you don't have to do that. And if if you don't, we'll call you a pre-majority union or something else.
0: I like the term because I like that it kind of conveys the idea that That pre-majority is like a temporary status, that the goal is to like really build the masses and the majority support, like a militant majority. This is a term I'm trying to, I'm trying to get going. I'm tired of militant minority. I want militant majorities. I like pre-majority because it kind of conveys that it's like, it's like an intermediary step, you know, that the goal is still, is to get rid of the prefix and just be majority unionism.
1: Yeah. And of course, you know, workers might, might obtain a majority of support. Mm-hmm. Um, and which is great because that's what we should try to get. Um, yeah, another term that people have sometimes used in minority unionism, you know, which is like maybe has fallen out of favor. I, I, I think, I think we want to aspire to, to more than that. So it, it's basically just organizing. I mean, that's just, it. I mean, people often ask me like, all right, how do we do this pre-majority organizing? I was like, well, you do the first 50 steps. Of regular organizing. You just organize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, what's the end goal going to be and how do you think about the flow of your organizing? And I'll say that on the EWOC website, workerorganizing.org, there is a whole report that we put up about this. There's also a Labor Notes article, which is a short version. And we even have things in the report like 14 challenges and advantages to pre-majority organizing. You know, things that come up like, is this real unionism? How do we sustain this? How do we like convince folks to pay dues? How do we know when we've won something and how do we declare victory? Like all of these things that come up if you don't have official benchmarks of winning an election and getting a contract, right?
0: Yeah, actually, could you talk a little bit more about that first question of like, is this a real union? Because this kind of came up in the last conversation I had on the show with Marianne Garneau that like there is this kind of like insecurity around not having like a certification for a unit, or like a collective bargaining agreement to still call yourself a union. You know, so I I imagine it comes up probably a lot for you and Ewok and like your research on pre-majority unionism. So how do you help overcome that kind of lack of confidence or imposter syndrome maybe amongst pre-majority unions that this is still still unionism?
1: Yeah, imposter syndrome could be a good way of thinking about it. Well, look, I mean, even the NLRA, National Labor Relations Act, makes clear and the NLRB makes clear that protections for organizing go for any groups of workers, whether you are officially certified or not. So I think it's just reminding folks that that's true. Like anytime two or more workers are doing collective action, they can consider themselves a union. So just go ahead and do that, like be a union. Yeah, I think maybe folks feel like really is it that simple like don't we need the government to certify this don't we need the employer to acknowledge this don't we need a piece of paper don't we need a contract you don't really need any of those things i understand that there is a certain attraction to that model because it does seem kind of really official and you do go through these milestones which are recognized and that's why i'm not going to i'm not going to tell people not to do it if that's the route they want to go then go ahead it's just some people can't or it's going to take a long time so they should they should understand that what they're doing is legit. If you're organizing, and especially if you're winning, you know, be proud of that and call yourselves a union. Then you have a, a bunch of questions about like, is this a self-sustaining structure? Should you pass bylaws? Should you elect officers? Should you collect dues? Like, how do you make this kind of more semi-official? But it's your own thing. And that's that's a whole host of questions. And I I'm not I'm not Meaning to say that any of this is straightforward or easy. I mean, no organizing is easy. But that's basically it. It's just educating folks that there is this other path that that is totally viable.
0: You had mentioned that in some places, pre-majority unionism is basically the only option where, like, for instance, for public sector workers, collective bargaining is illegal or not granted. Uh, And I think a lot of that is like in the South. Could you talk a little bit more about those examples? Like how have some of these like teachers unions in the South still operated as a union, despite the fact that they don't have the right to collective bargaining?
1: Yeah. And on the EWOC report, we have one case study, and I think I might have talked about this last time we talked, um, but it's, 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 it has persisted and, and strengthened the United Campus Workers campaign, which is a campaign of the Communication Workers of America, CWA. So it has a presence in like over a dozen states. All of those states, I think, don't have collective bargaining rights for public sector workers. It's wall to wall, so anyone who works at a campus could be a member. So they have members from like you know janitorial staff, you know grounds, you know uh, landscaping, maintenance, uh, up through dining hall, and then even like teaching assistants and grad students and professors, like all different kinds all together. You know, which might make things challenging and create some tensions, but they they feel like it, it gives a lot of strength to it. And they're just organizing. I mean, it's like petitions, it's rallies, direct actions, maybe some slowdowns, um, probably it, mixed in with lobbying, uh, you know, sending folks to the state capitol. And, and they've racked up a bunch of wins. And we just listed some of them, pay increases, getting at least 15 an hour for everybody on campus, even the elimination of some student fees, um, some stuff during COVID. Um, I think like clarification about like you know, the, job, the job and the working conditions of grad students and teaching assistants, you know, all of this without a contract. And I think to their credit, you know, they're organizing in some challenging states and they have thousands of members. I'm not sure how many thousands. So I think this is a solid pre majority unionism that's probably the largest and most persistent, you know, in the country. It's been going on well over 20 years. It started in Tennessee over 20 years ago. They stopped a wholesale um, job privatization scheme in Tennessee over 10 years ago. So solid. And, you know, it's subsidized by the CWA. It collects dues through their own ways. There's probably a bunch of ways of doing that. And so, I think like if they can do this, it could be done many, many other places. And th- there's other, there's lots of kind of teachers unions, associations in these kinds of states that operate in various ways. I mean, they don't have contracts. What they probably end up doing is they have as many members as they can and they collect dues, they hire some staff, and they go lobby for wage increases, et cetera, you know, successfully or not, and they do the best they can. But I mean, my God, this is difficult stuff. <laughs> so yes, yes to this you know people should be organizing in every state
0: do you know if to your knowledge do they have things like constitution and bylaws like elected officers like things like that
1: yeah united campus workers does i mean they have kind of i think model bylaws on there i think they have a bunch of locals and every local has some version of the model bylaws officers a stewards network i think everything you would see in a regular union um you know the big challenge for them is is collecting dues yeah and you know convincing folks to be members you know it's the same kind of thing and of course even in Regular unionism in a you know in a state like New York or California or something like that where you can have a contract, you still have to convince folks to be members and pay dues. All public sector workers are under the right to work system since the Janus case five years ago. So I think like there's like a Venn diagram. It's like regular unionism and pre-majority unionism. There's a lot of stuff in common and they cross over, and then there's some stuff that's unique.
0: There also seems like there's kind of a spectrum of organizing uh, philosophies and goals, though, with pre majority unionism. Like you kind of already named a little bit of it, but like solidarity unionism is, to be honest, I'm like starting to kind of like not like that term.
1: But <laughs> oh, tell me why. Yeah.
0: Well, I just like to call it industrial unionism. Like, why did we get rid of this better, more descriptive term? Uh, and you know, I, I get it. It's like the writings of Stalin Lind and stuff, great, great uh, labor leader. But maybe we like kind of got rid of some of these uh, better words, you know, and something new and sexy, but whatever. Anyway, solidarity unionism is like kind of the uh, choice of unionism by the IWW, but that would be like a pre-majority union, possibly, that realistically would not see like certification or collective bargaining as a potential goal ever. Whereas other pre-majority unions maybe do see that as a goal. So I guess I, would you be willing to just kind of give like a, Kind of the rundown of the spectrum of different types of pre-majority unions, like different goals that they all have. I, I mean, this is going to get like
1: a, this is going to be a really complicated chart, and I think we're always trying to find ways to simplify all this stuff. And there's a few different way, like frameworks of thinking about this. So, I mean, like one framework is contractual versus non contractual. Uh-huh. So regular unionism is contractual; it wants to get a contract, and then non contractual will be anyone, I guess, who's organizing that doesn't want a contract or will never get a contract. So there's that, you know, kind of direct action of solidarity unionism are the folks that just want to prioritize direct action on the job for improvements and don't necessarily care about certification or kind of any kind of like government approval about what they're doing. That's kind of maybe another framework to this as well. But I mean, this it even gets complicated because like, like in Ewok, for instance, and I asked about this, there have been dozens and dozens of campaigns where workers just fought for some improvements. And they didn't go further than that, either because they couldn't or they didn't want to. And in some cases, those unions may have died off. Uh, In other words, that we're done. We got our wage increase and we're done. So is that a pre-majority union campaign? Like it didn't persist. And if they don't think of themselves as a union over time, it was just kind of like a few months of activity to get something. And then that was it. Like I would consider that pre-majority unionism, but they don't really have a pre-majority union if it didn't persist. So, I mean, that's, that's the thing is that I would love to find ways to help them keep going, right? And like figure out how to institutionalize it a bit. I think that has always been the challenge. I know you talked about this in some recent podcasts, the sustainability challenge, right? Like, how do we keep these unions from kind of starting and, and maybe winning something and then dying away? And, and, th- and there are examples. It's just like we need more of them.
0: Have you noticed any trends that kind of makes the difference? Like, for example, a pre majority that is able to sustain for the long term? Are there any characteristics or tactics that are adopted, or strategies that you've seen tend to make the difference?
1: Well, more data needs to be collected, which is what I usually say when I'm when I'm unwilling to to, to fully answer the question.
0: This isn't this isn't real journalism or anything. So you can just <laughs> I mean, it's a great
1: question. I mean, literally, more data does need to be collected. I, I think this this was one of our goals of that report was to develop a lot of case studies. Right now, there's four case studies on there. So you know, we haven't. We haven't matched our ambition yet, and we'll get more over time. That's a good question. I mean, what I suspect is that campaigns that are larger and that have some affiliation with a a larger union, with a subsidy, find ways to persist over time. Uh, You know, because honestly, they will also have some staff assistance. Now, a small coffee shop of folks doing pre majority unionism, you know, and that's it on their own, may not have that. And, you know, turnover matters too, like United Campus Workers probably has. A large cohort of folks that have been there many years and are not going to quit anytime soon, that certainly helps. Folks at a small coffee shop or whatever, or retail store where the turnover is much higher, I mean, it's just going to be a chronic challenge. Like, I, honestly, like dealing with high turnover is, is such a challenge, somebody should tell me how we should do it, <laughs> other than constant organizing. And I'll just mention one other example. I think probably the longest running pre majority union that I know of. Our major one is, we have this case study up on the website too, the Carolina Automotive Workers Union, affiliated with the UE, has been around since the 1990s at an auto parts plant. Hundreds of members over time never got certification, could try for it. I think like either they may have failed in the early days or they've never tried um, because they saw election after election at Southern textile mills and other places just being lost. So they just organized around getting MLK Day as a holiday, wage increases, stopping discrimination. And it's, and it's it exists to this day. They're part of UE Local 150 in North Carolina. So, I mean, it's really inspiring. And again, like, if they can do it, then, like, you know, lots of other folks should do it. Now, they do have help from the UE, and this is a large, sizable plant. So at any one point, they might have hundreds of dues-paying members. That probably helps. It's the size of it and the assistance and the subsidy. And I think we talked about this last time. There's not many like regular unions that are willing to do this kind of unionism, which I think is a shame because there's such an opportunity to do more of it.
0: I agree. And, you know, being in a union that does deal with industries with a lot of high turnover, I'm becoming more and more sympathetic to why there's not a lot of unions that are willing to do this. I, I There's valid reasons. Oh, you're
1: turning around on this. I can't believe it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, no, but there's, they're not sufficient to excuses <laughs> to not organize in these industries, but it's like, good Lord, I don't have the answers about the turnover question either. You reminded me of this, just the idea that like having an association with a larger union can make the difference. I was recently reading a really good book called Waging a Good War. Actually, it was an assignment for my day job to read this book, and I think I'm the only one that did it. <laughs> but but I did. It's a book about the civil rights movement, and it's like a history book. But the person that wrote it is this journalist that's typically a wartime journalist. So he looked, he wrote the history and looked at the strategies and tactics of the civil rights movement through like a war analogy, like in comparing them to like war strategies and war tactics. It was actually really interesting and kind of clarifying about some of their tactics, like. Things like the freedom rides he described as like going behind enemy lines, you know, like in battle. But one of the things that really emerged that I feel like is more germane to like what we're talking about is that the civil rights movement, at least the breakdown that he was kind of conveying, had basically these three larger organizations that were really holding the ground. And it was the NAACP, the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, like MLK's organization, and then SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating <laughs> And in his analysis, it was like the NAACP was like the most, the largest, most resourced, but also kind of most retrograde organization involved in the entire civil rights movement, the most conservative and cautious. And I think it's debatable to some degree whether they actually held the movement back when it's like at its peak or, or furthered it. Then you had on the other end of the spectrum, SNCC, which was like the militants, the radicals, the young folks just like ready to like just burn shit down all the time, you know, and just go for it. And then you had this organization in the middle, kind of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And this was like a decently resourced organization with a lot of professional, like experienced staff, kind of holding the line between the two, but like really more amenable to like the SNCC group and like the demands of the radicals, but also like had a bit of like moderation to like, you know, kind of be strategic and methodical. And in his analysis, the relationship and tension between the three really mattered. But in particular, it was like SNCC and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. The tension that they had between each other actually produced a lot of productive outcomes. And so it's almost like you can make the argument that these like young, under-resourced radicals needed this kind of like mid-level organization with professional paid staff, to like help seed the ground and like move forward on the civil rights movement. I think that there are some modern analogs to this in the labor movement where you're seeing these like upstart unions or like these unions emerging in industries that have not been traditionally organized. And it seems like the ones that really spread have kind of found that like larger a union but not like super heavy top down organization to kind of give them funding and some staff and that that's really been like kind of a productive Tension between the two parts that seems to be working. I don't know that that's like uh, replicable, you know, that you can like necessarily duplicate that and recreate it over and over. But like, for instance, if you're uh, at Chipotle, maybe like your goal is to find that mid sized union that's willing to just give you some money and some staff and some pro bono legal work to sustain your organizing.
1: I think I think that's right. I, I was thinking just, you know, for instance, like the movie Selma came out a few years ago, talked about the tension between SNCC and SCLC. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it was a productive one. and They, they didn't always agree. But the yeah, I mean, there's so many lessons from the civil rights movement that I wonder if we've learned them all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, certainly, I think the one book I read was Charles Payne. I got the light of freedom some y- years ago about the deep, deep organizing that SNCC was doing in small communities throughout the South, which, which, which was the basis of everything. Like the things, the things that folks kind of remember are MLK speeches or maybe the lunch counter sit-ins, but like, you know, what about the million things that happened before that? So similar in union organizing, it's like, you know, Norma Ray stands up on the table at the, at the, at the plant, holding the union sign. But what about everything before that? It's all the deep work, you know, and it was, you know, just today I was listening to your, Interview with Daisy Pitkin about her book On the Line, which is such a fantastic book. And she talks about the grind, the years of solid organizing that it takes to do this stuff, no matter what kind of organizing you're doing. Like, you kind of can't avoid it. And all that's true in any kind of organizing. But I think to your point, it's like it's certainly going to help for any worker organization, however they're doing the organizing, to get assistance from a larger group. I mean, it would be really good. If every union would simply hand over some money (laughs) to an independent group and say, just go ahead and do it and we'll have our lawyers to help you, we'll give you some staff. Because honestly, I mean, I don't know where you're at in terms of like the staff thing. I've been a union staffer for 20 years and I kind of think it's necessary. It's just really, really difficult for workers to do this all on their own. They certainly can use training and assistance and EWOC has volunteers to do that. But outside staff assistance or somebody whose job it is every day to like get up and think about this campaign is really helpful. Now, maybe it's not essential every, every time. And for workers who are able to do this all on their own, I have a lot of admiration for that. But staffing requires money. And so where are we getting that from? It's either endless fundraising or it's a subsidy from a larger organization. I don't honestly really know how to get
0: around that at this point. For me, it's been more than seven years, I guess, on the staff side. And I feel older and older every day. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. But uh, I guess, you know, I, there is, I think to some degree, I still haven't totally landed on like what I really think about these kind of big juicy questions about staff. But I do agree that the scale I think matters. And then I think kind of the ratio of staff tends to matter I, t- I I talk to workers a lot about this and I promote the idea of being like staff lean, because I think when you add too many staff to the mix, because they're the people that can wake up and think about the campaign every day and put and dedicate all their time and energy to it, the gravitational pull is so easy to become staff driven when there's a lot of staff, like a lot of cooks in the kitchen, I guess you could say.
1: That's the absolute danger. So staff have to see their job as facilitating worker activity. In other words, like it, literally, like you all are gonna do as much as you can, and maybe I'm gonna help facilitate and coordinate that as the staff. And kind of that's it. But oftentimes I bet workers push back on that. Like, isn't this your job to do this? There's gonna be a tension there.
0: No, definitely. And and then I think again, like you're saying, particularly based on scale and like look, when you're talking about these big fucking scumbag corporations that have billions of dollars. How are you going to defeat that with like a purely shoestring and bubblegum organization? You know, something that's just like relying on fundraising. I don't see it either. But that's where I do think the kind of that kind of middle level organization, like an SCLC with some like experienced professionals that can give good mentorship, I do think is necessary. This also
1: just brings to mind something that's come up on your podcast before, you know, from Joe Burns and others about like having organizations that are kind of scrappy enough to defy labor law. And one proposal that's been floating around forever, I want to see, see what you think about that, is that unions with a big bank account and real estate and everything else are, are necessarily likely going to be somewhat conservative. No union president wants to bankrupt their union. But what if they're funding a no-asset organization that can do whatever it wants? You know, they might get arrested, but they're not going to get sued out of existence so, I mean, like that's been floated around for a while. I think Joe talks about that too. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe we need to do more of that. I don't know. What do you think?
0: I agree. Yeah. I <laughs> I think you're right. It's in his book. I tried to get him to talk about it more on the show and I feel like he kind of hemmed and hawed. I'm glad to hear you're a listener. Absolutely. But yeah, I I just I guess I wonder like why aren't we doing that? Is it really just so easy as saying we're just kind of stuck in routine and just going through the motions and that's why we're not doing these experiments or is there something else that I'm missing? That prevents us from like just seeding these kinds of experiments in the labor
1: movement. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think part of it is inertia and folks who are used to doing things a certain way. Risk aversion, some amount of conservatism in terms of um, you know this this is how unionism is done. Uh, some amount of hoping for labor law reform, like the Pro Act, which is going to make this easier, which you know we we may never get. Some amount of like oh the NLRB is getting better these days, which is true you know, all this is in the mix. There's just, there's not enough. I mean, if you think about kind of all the organizers running around, staff organizers, like so few of them are being trained in any other way of doing organizing. And then some of them are going to climb the ladder and some of them will be union presidents someday, maybe. And then, you know, they're just used to doing this a certain way. So in a sense, I think like you've said this before, like we might have to rely on other organizations to do the riskier stuff, but they also need help and funding and assistance. And so maybe all, maybe what we can hope for from regular unions is just just fund them and help them, and then like get out of the way. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, this is the, this is the tension. And I think these are the interesting questions.
0: Another thing that uh, friends of mine have said when it comes to these kinds of discussions about like why we're so risk averse, I think it's accurate that people have pointed out to me that we there's also like a generational knowledge gap. There's like elder folks in the labor movement, and then it seems like this just gigantic gap. And now there's like new young folks emerging in the labor movement. There's not a lot of folks that are kind of like in that middle age zone that have like experienced victories and power in the labor movement and are like heavily involved that I think have been able to like create that intergenerational connection between the elders and the youth. And that, I think that's also, maybe that's not like totally relevant to why the labor movement is not willing to take risk or do more experimental stuff. But I do think that's one of the big places that is like making it a struggle to really build a thriving labor movement is that the intergenerational mentorship just seems to be completely lacking and not happening. And then honestly, you know, the folks that are like, like if you're older than like 60 in the labor movement, you've basically only managed the slow decline of the labor movement. Like you've never really seen tons of like dramatic growth and thriving movements. So it's easy to be kind of stuck in your ways.
1: Folks have gotten used to losing and managing decline. I'm of the Gen X generation, so maybe I'm in, I'm in that middle layer. And yeah, maybe you're right. If we look at the demographic data, maybe you have a lot of older folks and a lot of younger folks. And like I, yeah, I came into the labor movement in the late 90s, early 2000s, and there was an energy in the air because of uh, John Sweeney's new voice, Slate, that took over the AFL-CIO and was like willing to acknowledge the crisis and spur more organizing. And I think some of that was was real. But a lot of it was kind of locked in the usual paradigm. And, and we just kept seeing the numbers decline over time. And, you know, I, I was doing a, a ton of reading at the time about like what was going on in labor, but a lot of labor academics were writing books at the time about it, studying the art of organizing. You know, I think a lot of it was was good, but, you know, still, still the decline for all the reasons that we know. And, you know, some of the folks in the older generation, like let's remember, especially if they were around in the 80s. For in the 90s, they spent a lot of time, like many of them like like negotiating plant closures. just devastated. And that creates a certain mindset that my God, we just have to hold on to what we have and do the best we can, you know, until things get better <laughs> whatever that is. Like I never really had to go through that and, and you haven't and that just creates this real risk aversion. Also, the era of the 80s of like lots of lost strikes, Patco onward, you know, just, again, created a lot of risk aversion. Now, I hope we're getting over that with our with our current upsurge that we all hope we're having, and the new Gen Z folks coming in, most pro-union generation ever, willing to throw down, material conditions are terrible, they want to organize. Like, that is really exciting, and we should be, like, pushing on this open door with everything we have.
0: What do you think about the current atmosphere in the labor movement? Because I... Well, I mean, we're both at a bubble, so maybe you can't say that beyond (laughs) me. But I see the enthusiasm. I see the momentum. I see 88% of the youth are supportive of unions. All sounds good. And then I see, like, yeah, people rallying behind the Teamsters, like imminent strike. Now there's the big three, UAW potential strike. It just seems like the vibe and mood is, like, so much more elevated than it used to be. But I wonder if I'm also just in a total echo chamber and kind of buying into my own hype.
1: I, I agree. I agree there's there's some of that. Also, if we're on Twitter or social media, like all my feed is like labor stuff. Oh my God, it seems like there's so much going on. Strikes everywhere. Well, you know, step out into the real world and nobody nobody's talking about strikes everywhere or a lot of people aren't. So that's why, you know, we, we will look at the numbers every year. Membership, elections, strikes, polling that comes out, all that stuff. And all of that is on the upswing, which is positive. So it's not just... We're not just in a bubble but our but we kind of are and it's also not big enough yet like if it's an upsurge we need it to continue and go and go much higher and and it looks like the numbers this year are even better than last year which is great part of that again is this this large and impressive Starbucks campaign racking up wins. So in a sense it's like yes, let's get out of our bubble, let's recognize we are kind of in one but the numbers are kind of real to some extent. But again, you know, we're also missing a ton of data, like all the pre-majority stuff, all the examples of workers organizing for stuff. Like That data is harder to collect. What's also really good is that the Cornell labor, uh, labor tracker is now collecting all strikes. So not just large ones and not just official union ones when contracts expire, but all of them that they can find. So that will also include a lot of kind of informal strikes of worker organizations that are outside formal unionism. So, you know, they have several years worth of data, and it'd just be really interesting to kind of dig in on that, and including they're finding out dozens of strikes for recognition. That's pretty good. And, you know, we, we want to see hundreds. <laughs> but th- so there, there's a there's reason for optimism, even amidst our typical cynicism.
0: Yeah, I, I do look forward to those annual strike reports from the ILR. And last year, as I remember, was pretty optimistic. I, I, I could be wrong, but my memory was that a fair proportion of overall strikes came out of the food service industry.
1: Certainly that. And non union workers striking, as opposed to union workers striking, you know, for at you know, contract expiration. That that's really interesting. I mean, that really needs to be tracked and they are
0: tracking it, which is good. And, and we'll see what kind of trends there are. I had mentioned before that solidarity unionism is something that I'm like starting to kind of not as down with as I used to be, I guess. Part of that is also in thinking about these larger, the need for like bigger upsurges and like larger trends that like can really be the source of optimism and like taking on companies like Starbucks, for instance, and Amazon. What I look at when I look at like solidarity unionism and kind of like the mindset that people are at that try to embrace it is that the focus tends to be just really small, hunker down in my own backyard. There's like, it's almost like a, Joe Burns called it nut picker unionism. And I don't know what he <laughs> means by that. But
1: um, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah.
0: I Yeah. I'm not sure what the story is there, but it's very parochial and it's almost, and I almost wonder if it's a symptom of somebody like Stoughton Lynn having basically been through big plant closures, the decline of the labor movement, the defeat and the demoralism saying, look, the best we can do is just go back to the local and just experiment on a small scale, see what sticks, throw everything at the wall. And then hope for the best. And it's like everybody tends to just like focus their energies on the small. And we're not there like there's not really a willingness to take on the big employers. And frankly, like we have to defeat these big employers if we really want to see the labor movement revive.
1: A statistic I saw somewhere that no huge employer has been organized since like the 1950s. Like, not a safe, like every huge employer, like a Kroger or a Safeway or, or a UPS or a General Motors, they're all organized in the 50s or earlier. Nothing since. That's devastating. Oh. And so that's you know one reason why the Starbucks and the Amazon organizing is so exciting and some other large companies is that now we are finally trying to take them on. And we can argue about strategy and what the best way forward is. Uh, but the important thing is to just get the organizing going, and we know it's going to be a challenge, but we need to do it. We can't just always organize 20-person shops. You know, the, There will always be some of that. I mean, if you look at the average bargaining unit for union elections, it's usually like 20, 25 workers or something. I mean, it's pretty small. And maybe part of that is that like there are fewer huge shops out there. Maybe some examples these days are the graduate teaching assistants. You know, Those are large units. There are not so many 3,000 worker factories anymore. To go after, I mean, some of them are still sizable or three thousand worker warehouses. Like work workplaces have shrunk a bit and they're you know kind of more uh, disaggregated. But but the, the the willingness to take on large corporations is essential. And so how do we how do we do that? And, and you're right, like thinking small, like we're just going to do this one shop. You know, you're never going to win just doing one. A- Amazon labor union with one victory in Staten Island as impressive as it is, we know there needs to be more victories linked up. In a larger struggle. Absolutely. But the ambition is there, which is great.
0: I think you're right. And I, I do want to make sure to clarify uh for anybody that's big solidarity unionist that I do think the small matters. Like I think it's good to experiment on the small scale. And like I don't want to like dismiss that. I just think that it's not enough. Right. Like, and i these days I'm becoming more and more concerned and thinking about how to defeat the large employers. I mean, there's a reason, you know, obviously I think about Starbucks day in, day out anymore, but like, how do we win, you know, and how do we win? Like the big wins is the question that's on my mind.
1: That's why I'm wondering if, the, if, the, if I wonder if the Starbucks campaign found the sweet spot here, which is that like, you know, prior to two years ago, I don't know if anyone in the world would have thought you could win that many Starbucks store elections. It was kind of like de rigueur in the labor movement for a long time. To say, oh, we're not going to do McDonald's by McDonald's or Starbucks fest. we We're not going to do individual store elections. First of all, we probably won't win. Second of all, it'll take forever. It's you know what we need is like a much larger campaign, and sometimes you know that would mean a corporate campaign or things like that. You know, which I think can have its uses. But but the Starbucks campaign, and you tell me, more like seems to have found this idea that like yes, individual fights at the store level can be won, but then you string them together into a broad network. That seems to be largely worker run with staff assistance. And and basically, what what do you need to do? You need to like reach several thousand stores until finally the company feels like it needs to move. Like That's the way it seems like it's going, and that might take a bunch of years. Can you hold everything together while you continue to do that? I mean, all that sounds viable. It's a tough slog,
0: though. No, I think you're right. And I mean, it's like any campaign in that it has its highs and its lows, and the internal mood changes. I think it's true that it hit a spark, it hit a moment, it really took off. And the speed and scale of the campaign has been very inspiring. And it started to make me, like kind of going back to pre-majority unionism, it started to make me question the narrative that we actually do need to have the entire employer organized all at once to win. It's almost like the density analysis, that the only way we can leverage concessions on the employer is if we have enough density to do so. And I, I agree, like, mass majorities are what we need. Like, definitely, we have more power that way. But it turns out, even with the pre-majority union, which I think I'm okay calling the Starbucks campaign that, you can actually leverage wins. Like, you can get demands met. And you, it's, it's really more about the militancy and the tactics and the overall strategy that I think makes the difference. The fact that the workers are willing to do, I mean, I don't think the larger public even really realizes how many marches on the boss and disruptive actions happen on the campaign like every day. I feel there's a, it's been like a, kind of the joke is the same thing happens every day of my life. Every Sunday morning, I feel like I wake up at 7 a.m. to a phone call about workers going on strike or needing advice on a quick march on the boss. It's like it, inevitable. It just happens over and over and over again, no matter where it is in the country. So there's a lot of militancy and direct action. And it turns out that even with the pre-majority union, that can get the goods. Maybe not the biggest prizes yet. It needs to keep growing, but but it fucking works. You know, like you can leverage demands. The campaign has chalked up a lot of victories. It's inspiring. And the Starbucks campaign, I think, is not
1: winning elections and then sitting back and waiting for the NLRB to solve their problems. I mean, certainly there's ULPs being processed, but I think what's really inspiring is, like you said, the workers taking action at stores all the time, uh, also getting customer support. Like that that's exactly what's needed. I mean, I think like the NLRB will, will in a sense, and the NLRA will, will, will always be involved with them just because it's like impossible, I think, to escape labor law yeah. entirely. So processing ULPs, sure. Getting the assistance of the NLRB, sure. You know, it takes forever. We don't want to rely on it. Uh, and then throwing lots of other things in the mix. And pushing the envelope, like, I think I think folks may not realize, like, there's really nothing stopping groups of workers from just striking all the time. Like, you know, we have to kind of be, be wary of how it's done. Walkouts, job actions, slowdowns, strikes. Like, you know, it's all possible to do if we're willing to do it. You know, we'd have to kind of really strategize about the right way to do it. And it seems like the Starbucks campaign is willing to push the envelope on that, which is really great. Not just let's win an election and then sit back and wait because we cannot do
0: that. Realistically, the entire message that's communicated to workers from day one of their involvement on the campaign is like the election victory is not enough, you need to be ready to strike and do direct action at any given moment. I think in some ways the kind of going thinking was that that would be too scary and intimidating for like labor organizers and leaders to be that pointed about this is how you win. Like you have to strike, you know, you have to like create credible militancy. But to the contrary, in my experience, the more you just kind of level with workers and be honest about the stakes and what it's going to take to win, the more they embrace it. Like I have not had workers tell me that that's too scary to march on my boss or do a delegation or like go on strike. Amazing. They're down. They just they just want to know how. Exactly. It's building up the confidence,
1: and but 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 expecting that workers can do it, um, and in fact they need to do it. <laughs> You've said on podcasts before. I mean. Where else is the solution except the working class? Like, we don't have enough staff to organize the revolution, yeah. and we never will. Um, we can help train and coordinate, <laughs> maybe. You know, and similarly, I think I could talk more about it openly now. I spent a lot of time with Ewok working with Trader Joe's workers over the last year or two, inspiring workers at high turnover workplaces. And, you know, for a while, we were building a worker network, you know, which was, which was which was a challenge but it existed and folks were doing direct action and petitions and winning some things at the local store level. Now we have the Independent Trader Joe's United, which is a great group. They are winning store elections. It seems to be perhaps on a trajectory like Starbucks where just uh, just rack up enough store wins with coordination and they're an independent union so the challenges are even greater. And um and it's it's inspiring to see see it happen. One of the elections that I helped with in New York City, unfortunately, tie uh, at the Lower East Side store, and that is a painful, painful loss because a tie is a loss because it could it could have gone differently with just <laughs> with just a single vote. So I mean, but these things will happen, and um, I mean, maybe I think they're now talking about maybe a CMEX. Yeah, is that the order. first one that was filed? Well, they filed it. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. That's that's potentially exciting. I mean, your your listeners. We'll probably be aware of the, the revolution that's going on at the NLRB. Some folks will roll their eyes at it. I'm taking it seriously because there's gonna be some good stuff coming. So again, I think like the labor movement throughout its history needs to like be aggressive, use every tool, including like pushing the NLRB to do as much as it can, but not relying on the NLRB. Let's let's basically we have to do everything. So so we'll see what happens out of that. And I think some other units are looking mm-hmm. at that too um, going forward. And I'm sure union busters are now going to have a very busy Labor Day weekend trying to figure out how to deal with this new framework that that's coming. (laughs) So we'll see, but fight all the time, always everywhere. That's our, that's our mantra.
0: Just out of curiosity, did the Trader Joe's United campaign, was that kind of like an evolution of some earlier work that was happening in Ewok? Or would you say that they kind of happened parallel, like simultaneously with each other, then linked up?
1: Yeah, largely parallel. I mean, we have, you know, kind of partnership, like we're we're talking all the time, a parallel development coming out of a store in Hadley, Massachusetts. But, you know, and and I know you've talked about independent unionism on past episodes. I think it's really inspiring to see and also a challenge. Like, again, it's like, you know, you're trying to run a union, you have expenses. I mean, they're not, as far as I know, they're not collecting dues yet because they don't have a contract, which is the standard model. So there's, there's all kinds of challenges there. You know, maybe some independent unions eventually will affiliate with another union, like that happens too, and maybe that's okay, and maybe they're allowed, you know, allowed to operate autonomously. So I think like any independent union is not going to have an easy time, and we shouldn't pretend that they.
0: It's true what you say too about like the voluntary dues. I almost feel like even outside of like an independent union or something that's doing pre-majority, sometimes I wonder if that actually is a good strategy to just start getting workers, even before a contract, more accustomed to what it's like to be part of a democratic organization. Part of a democratic organization means you fund it yourself. That's that's the most democratic way of having an independent organization is when the money that sources it comes from you and your coworkers. So I wonder sometimes if, um, I know the standard is before you have a first contract, you don't collect dues. But I almost wonder if like unions should be a little bit more willing to experiment with like some kind of associate tier membership or voluntary dues structure, even if they're on path to a first contract.
1: Yeah, I, I I've called for that in some of the stuff that I've written. I mean, I think it's that unions would have to kind of rewrite their bylaws, maybe even a, a convention resolution, because like dues-paying membership is is codified in a certain way, and then you get to vote and you get to participate in union affairs. And the the typical way is you are covered by a a union contract with the union. And so if that's not the case, then who would be eligible to join? Like, I kind of feel like any, you know, maybe in an expansive way, any group of workers that are organizing, staying in touch with the union, getting training, et cetera, should be eligible as, yeah, as you said, like an associate member, pay dues, participate in the union. I mean, you know, there, there could be hundreds of thousands, maybe even like low millions, of workers that want to be in the mix in that way you know but again they have to be organizing to build power we don't want to just forever have two workers in a shop you know not building power so so it would have to be done very carefully
0: some of the things that are happening in uh, my union that i work for that i'm like, getting optimistic about is that we are starting to look at a structure of like more directly collecting dues at least on the local chapter i work for uh, not the entire chapter you know some of that is already very well established the dues collecting system but there is kind of a desire to get away from allowing the boss to hold the money you know and uh, remit it to the union which is like the typical dues checkoff structure so like experimenting with direct collection having stewards more involved in the actual collection of dues i think some of this stuff is interesting and i do think I'm in Philly where there is a lot of like small shop organizing that's just taking off. It's just kind of, honestly, it's it's in no small way inspired by the Starbucks campaign. A lot of like food service workers from small shops and specialty shops want to organize and they've got the passion and the energy for it and they they mostly do it themselves. And for those small shops, I think there's like an openness to experiment with this kind of like associate tier structure and see what voluntary due structures look like. There's things kind of percolating that I'm I'm excited about.
1: Yeah, I mean, pros and cons. Automatic dues deduction really makes it easy to collect those dues. But what the con is, you know, you don't have to be in touch with members <laughs> as often. Uh, it's a real pain maybe to collect those dues. You could try to find a way for them to pay regularly. But as you said, then the boss doesn't know who's a member and who's paying. And that's really key. So I would agree. Let's move in the other direction finding our own ways to collect dues, you know, the IWW would would collect uh, cash and then like put a stamp in your book. Okay, we'll do it more electronically. (laughs) Maybe there'll be regular Venmos or something like that. But let me ask you also something, you mentioned something on a previous podcast. So there are contracts or a contract in Philly with a pro strike clause, as in we can strike. I love it. Like we need much more of that.
0: Yeah, it's called the strike process clause. You know, it enshrines that there's a commitment to resolving issues without striking, but it still says we hold on to our right under the NLRA to strike under any violations of this CBA. Pretty proud of that.
1: Nice. And look, it, it turned out that that was possible all right. along. Ever since 1935 to do that, unions just stopped doing it, you know, as part of the, as part of the labor peace. And what a shame.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I, I have warned of a couple of other contracts that have kind of similar provisions where it's like in the grievance procedure, there's like uh, the right to strike under certain conditions. It's interesting stuff. So maybe this is a trend that's starting to pick up too in the labor movement, which I'd be pleased by.
1: Yeah, and the UE just finished their strike at Wabtec up in right. up in Erie, uh, Buffalo. And I, I think I'd have to see more. Was One of the issues was maintaining the right or getting back the right to strike. Uh, Over grievances, and they put out this fantastic report. I mean, speaking of like collecting the data, you know, they used to have the right to strike over grievances. Then they gave it away. You know, I think when Wabtec took over, now they want it back. And the report shows that the processing of grievances slowed way the hell down when they couldn't strike anymore. And also, by the way, union expenses went way the hell up to pay for all these arbitrations. That's exactly what we need to know. And no surprise. Yeah. So let's let's get back the right to strike. Uh, uh, maximally under as much, much conditions as we can. And then I think you've said on previous podcasts, we have to use it. Uh, you know, we have to exercise the strike muscle. We have to be strike ready all the time, which is asking a lot. Because yeah. a lot of times workers might want labor peace for a while. That's true. This is a lot. And it's stressful. But we have to be strike ready all the time. And the labor movement is strike ready rarely, unfortunately.
0: It's true. I like the way that Joe Burns puts it in his book. um, I think it's in Class Struggle Unionism. He describes it as like temporary truces rather rather than labor peace. Like there are moments of like a temporary truce with the capitalist, you know, the boss, but temporary at best. And I, I think that's that seems a little more doable and sustainable than like, you know, all the time being ready to throw down.
1: Well, I mean, we'll take the weekend and take a break. Yeah. I mean, like solidarity unionism or pre-majority unionism, direct action unionism, one thing it does is it asks a lot of the workers, kind of like, you know, how many workers are willing to throw down and be class war militants kind of all the time? Or maybe that's overstating it, but lots of struggle all the time with very little rest and no reliance on staff to like, or lawyers to kind of process your, your problems. So workers, I think, have to get used to that idea and build up the confidence that they can do it and sustain it. And I think that's that's a great problem to have, and and we need to address it. I think training and education and practicing and seeing more great examples is is part of the solution. And just and just you know, folks, especially young workers, kind of discovering their power and exercising it and having that spread is is, is it is it. That's what we want.
0: Probably good to kind of come to a conclusion here, but it has been apparently way longer than I thought since we last talked. And I'm wondering. It sounds like you're not as involved as maybe you used to be, but. Are there things that have developed in EWOC since the last time we talked that you're inspired by and you think our listeners should know about?
1: Yeah, I'm not in the central discussions. I've, uh, I'm probably a little less active than I was. As far as I know, it's still running largely the same as when we talked last time. I mean, there's still, you know, cases come in, they get an intake call, I think, within 48 hours that was shortened from 72. Uh, then it's assigned to an advanced organizer. There are local Ewok chapters. We have one in New York City and some other places. So we might try to like help out folks with local campaigns. There's still a commitment to doing kind of large scale campaigns at large companies. You know, Trader Joe's was, was one example. We were working with folks at many stores, you know, still a commitment to the training and education. You know, there's, there's regular organizer calls. I think it's largely, you know, fine-tuned along the way, continuing, has probably processed like a hun- hundreds of campaigns with a lot of them winning something, but also there, there might be more of a pipeline now, towards like workers wanting to be connected with a regular union for an election. So that often happens too. Um, sometimes they might go independent. Sometimes they'll be, you know, they'll go with the union. We kind of hand them off. Then, you know, EWOC probably has to take a step back. I think largely successful, I think just, you know, an, an indicator of, of more of what could be done, you know, if we really scale it up. And I think I said last time, it's like, what would it mean to train a million workers and how to organize and then turn them loose and just and see what kind of organizing happens I still think it's like, that's the scale we need to operate at.
0: Our guest has been Eric Dernbach. Thanks for joining us again on Labor Wave Radio. Eric, how do folks find your work and follow you on the interwebs?
1: I think all my social media handles are Eric Dernbach, uh, Facebook, Twitter, everything, E-R-I-C-D-I-R-N-B-A-C-H. You can email me at edernbach at gmail.com. I have some articles up on Medium. I have a LinkedIn page. You can see the stuff there. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm happy to talk all the, all the time. It's all I do. It feels like it's all I do. And this has been a real pleasure. Thanks, Alex.
0: Yeah, and thanks for being a listener.